happy Reformation Sunday, y'all. Today we celebrate the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. The day, October 31st, 1517, when a quirky, beer-drinking German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, which helped spark the Protestant Reformation. Luther was only 34 years old when he took a hammer and nailed that piece of paper to that door in what he thought was going to be an open dialogue and discussion about the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of grace and their use of indulgences, but we know it ended up changing the world. It started a a chain reaction of events that changed the world, and that's what we're celebrating today. We're celebrating the hammering skills of a quirky, beer-drinking monk. But it's also the weekend of our 2017 Global Outreach Missions Conference, and that's why our sermon title is Bad People Make Good Missionaries. That's a true statement. I think Martin Luther would totally agree. Bad people really do make good missionaries. As I heard Jean LaRue say in a sermon once, he said, why is it that when it comes to Christianity, we believe that you have to be good, righteous, moral, and upright to talk about Jesus? You see, it's actually sinners who are the most qualified people to talk about the gospel. It's people who need Jesus who are qualified to talk about Jesus. Listen, when we reverse the paradigm and believe that you have to be good to talk about Jesus, what we've missed is the gospel. And that's why only bad people make good missionaries. When it comes to the redemption of sinners, it just may be that the needy, broken, messy people are uniquely qualified to talk about redemption. Not not the cleaned up, victorious evangelicals. There's only two organizations in the world where you have to be bad to get in. The first is the church, and the second is the mafia. You have to be bad to get in. Think about that. We won't let you join. You can't come forward. You can't go to a new member's class. You can't join if you're a good person. You can only be a part of the kingdom of God if you're desperate and needy. If that describes you and you believe it wholeheartedly, then you're in for a real treat today. We're still continuing in our series in Mark, binge-watching Jesus, but we're also going to be talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther, my favorite theologian, as well as missions and our desire to see the gospel spread to the nations and the people groups of the world. And the glue that holds all of this together, of course, is Jesus. He's the reason for all of it. This is about him and for him, for his glory. So it's going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon and a different kind of big idea today, too. Our big idea is just one word, and I'll explain it as we go on. But here's our big idea today. Liar. That's our big idea. I hope you can remember it. Liar. This one word can become a very handy weapon to use against your adversary, the devil. I personally say it to him 
often. And today I'm going to encourage you to do the same. In fact, recently I was talking, I was engaging in a conversation with the devil, calling him a liar, and ran into someone and had a conversation with them. And as I left, I continued my conversation with the devil, and I said out loud, liar. And I thought, oh my goodness, they probably thought I was saying that to them. So if that was you, I wasn't calling you a liar. One word to change your life. One word that Jesus used often as he faced temptation in the desert for 40 days, which is what we saw last week in Mark's gospel. That's where we left off. And now we have a new episode. Since we're binge-watching Jesus, we have a new episode to move on to in chapter 1. So let's do that now. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark begins his next episode, and he gives us the time frame for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It happened after Jesus told the devil that he was a liar in the wilderness, and it happened after John the Baptist was arrested. Now, Mark assumes that you and I know the story about what happened with John the Baptist. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us how John spoke out against Herod's brother's marriage and subsequently got put in the slammer. So sometime after John got fingerprinted and had his mugshot taken, Jesus officially began his ministry. And what was the big idea of Jesus' sermons? Well, it was the same as his cousin John, the one who just got arrested. Jesus was preaching the gospel. He was preaching good news to worn out sinners. He was preaching sermons that declared the good news that had come, the good news had come, the kingdom of God was now at hand. But what did Jesus mean when he said this? What is the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about in verse 11? Well, let me say two things about the kingdom of God. First, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, he is referring to himself. Jesus was not saying that the kingdom of God was only something that happened far off into the future and we had to wait for it. Jesus understood the kingdom of God to mean the present fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and that they were now happening in real time, manifested in the person and work of Jesus himself. But the kingdom of God also does have a future component. The kingdom of God has what scholars and theologians refer to as this already, not yet aspect. There's this already, but not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. It was already present in the person of Jesus as he began making all things new, and yet not yet present as we also await the consummation of the kingdom of God in the future when Jesus will finally and fully make all things new. So it's already here but it's not yet here completely. So the fulfillment is there in the person of Jesus, and yet the kingdom is still to come. And the kingdom is there in the person of Jesus, and yet the fulfillment of it is still to come. Second thing I want to say about the kingdom of God, and I've heard Pastor Greg say this numerous times as he has quoted one of his favorite theologians, Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard said this is what the kingdom of God is. It's God reigning. It's where what God wants done gets done. That's the kingdom of God. It's God reigning. 
So let me ask you, was God reigning when Jesus called the devil a liar in the wilderness when he was tempted? Yes. Was God reigning when John the Baptist was put in handcuffs? Yes. Was God reigning when Jesus began preaching? Yes. Was what God wanted done getting done when Jesus called the devil a liar during his wilderness temptations? Yes. Was what God wanted done getting done when John the Baptist had to take a mugshot? Yes. Was what God wanted done getting done when Jesus began preaching the gospel in Galilee? Yes. So now let me ask you, is the kingdom of God here among us today? Yes. The kingdom of God is advancing and growing now. Why? Because God is reigning right now, and he is getting done what he wants done. He's getting done what he wants done in this church. The kingdom of God is here at grace because God reigns over this church, and what he wants done here among us will get done. And we'll see all of this God reigning stuff and all of this God's will be done, what God wants done will be get done, will get done. We'll see all that stuff begin to unfold in Mark's gospel pretty early on as he calls his disciples, as he begins casting out demons, as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. All that we're going to see Jesus doing in the gospel of Mark, you can file it under the kingdom of God. But how was the kingdom of God manifesting itself through Jesus? Well, one way was through his sermons, through his preaching. And when you think of the greatest preachers in the world, I hope the very first person that you think of is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest gospel-centered preacher there ever was. The greatest preacher that ever lived was Jesus. And then maybe the prophets in a distant second. And then maybe uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones or someone like that. I hope you think of Jesus first when you think of a great preacher. Mark tells us that Jesus came preaching good news. Good news about God's kindness and God's mercy towards sinners. And that's why people flock to Jesus. Not because he preached messages that were hellfire and brimstone. Jesus emphasized God's love and God's mercy. Now, of course, Jesus preached the law. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's meant to expose us as sinners. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, I can't. Exactly. That's the point of the law. Yes, Jesus preached the law. Yes, he exposed people as sinners. He spoke of hell. He spoke of future judgment. He preached the law. But the emphasis of his preaching was the gospel, was good news. And his good news sermons led people to repentance. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel in Galilee, as Mark says here in verses 14 and 15. And he was calling people to repentance and calling them to believe the gospel. Jesus preached repentance just like his cousin John the Baptist. And how does repentance happen? As we saw several weeks ago, it's God's kindness to us that leads us to repentance, not the other way around. Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness. If you think that you can repent enough that God finally says, okay, I'll relent, come here, let me love on you, you don't understand the gospel. 
Our repentance does not lead to God's kindness towards us. It's God's kindness towards us that changes and transforms our heart so that we want to go to him and freely confess our sins. That's how the Pharisees and the religious leaders preached. They said, repent, turn from your sin, and then God will be kind to you. That's the kind of preaching that was occurring when John the Baptist and Jesus appeared on the scene. And that's exactly the kind of sermons that Martin Luther heard throughout his whole life. That's why Martin Luther was angry at God. Luther was mad at God because all that Luther ever heard about God was that God was mad at him because Luther was a sinner and God was holy. That's all he ever heard. God's mad at you. you got to appease him. But then Martin Luther experienced an awakening as he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says this about the gospel. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther began to see that righteousness was a free gift offered by God to sinners. And so the lights came on for Luther. And he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of in Romans chapter 1 was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would try to achieve it actively through their works. That's what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. You've got to earn this. It was ingrained in Luther even 20 plus years after he nailed the 95 Theses at that church door. Even 20 years after that, he said this, my greatest temptation is to believe that God is not gracious. Many of you struggle with that as well. That's why I love Luther. We're cut from the same cloth. I struggle to believe that God is as good as he says he is. Righteousness Luther began to understand was for those who would receive it by faith and by which they could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And here's how Luther described his experience as he finally saw that the righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, according to Romans 1.17, was a free gift and a demonstration of God's kindness to sinners. He said this, I just spilled tea all over myself. Here's what he said with sticky honey tea on his chin. He said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to be inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became, became to me a gateway to heaven. And this was the moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean in Romans 1.17, Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous. Instead, he's speaking of a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have any righteousness of their own. Yes, Martin, that's what he was saying. Originally, Luther thought that righteousness was God's holy character and his anger at sin. 
In fact, when Luther would go into church, there was this wood carving of Jesus hanging up, and the veins on Jesus' neck stood out and popped because that was their understanding of Jesus. He's angry. He's angry at every one of you sinners. And he would see that picture every time he walked into church, and it made him angry at God. He was angry because he said, if righteousness revealed in the gospel is that God is mad at sinners, Luther said, how in the world can that be good news? I'm a sinner and I can't do anything about it. How is it good news that God is mad at me and I can't do anything to appease him? And so he had this idea in this picture of Jesus with his veins just bulging out of his neck and anger with a frown on his face. He was being taught that God's righteousness looked like this. God is righteous, and he punishes sinners. He punishes the unrighteous. And that made Luther angry with God. But then he began to see that righteousness in Romans 1.17 was a free gift given to undeserving sinners by a loving and kind and merciful and gracious God who has a smile on his face. Luther discovered that the Greek word in Romans 1.17, dikaios or dikaiosune, didn't mean to make someone righteous, but rather to regard someone as righteous, to count them as righteous, to declare over them you are righteous. And that's when the lights came on for Luther. Now many people today still see God's righteousness the way Luther originally did. It was how the Pharisees presented God. He's angry. He's just. He's chomping at the bit to strike you down. But the gospel, which means good news, reveals that God's righteousness is a free gift given to sinners. And this is why people clamor to John the Baptist's preaching, and it's why people clamor to Jesus' preaching. It's why the crowds in Mark's gospel can't get enough of Jesus. They won't leave him alone. He has to go away and hide in desolate places. They wanted to know that righteousness could be given as a gift and not earned. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jesus' day were telling everyone that they had to earn it. They had to earn acceptance with God through their behavior. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day smugly thought they had arrived spiritually and everyone else was just trying to keep up. And the same was true in Luther's day. They were being taught, you have to earn this. We've arrived Maybe you can earn it. And if not, well, then you'll go into purgatory and then maybe somebody can bail you out of there if they give more money. Right standing with God is a gift that God gives to sinners and it can never be earned. That was the heartbeat of John's wilderness preaching, the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. It was the heartbeat of the Reformation. And it's the heartbeat of missions today, the heartbeat of global outreach. We want to be a church that supports and sends people who proclaim the good news that God loves them and forgives sinners when they trust in this alien righteousness that Jesus secured for us. That's what Luther called it. He called it justitia alienum extra nos, which means alien righteousness outside of us, that we don't have it inherent, we can't earn it, it has to come from someone else outside of us, different, alien from us, and we get it from Jesus. And that's what we want to proclaim in missions. We want to do missions and we want to support missionaries who tell people that righteousness, right standing with God can be theirs if they simply reach out the empty hands of faith. We're all about missions here at Grace because we're all about the gospel here at Grace. 
And so Luther rediscovered the righteousness of God that is free for sinners without any kind of earning. And when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to that church door, the Reformation began, and then it slowly became a time of the recovery of the true meaning of the grace of God. Because the Catholic Church didn't understand grace. It became a a rediscovery of of the gospel. It became a, a recovery of what are called the five solas. Maybe you've heard these. Sola scriptura, scriptura, according to scripture alone. Sola gratia, saved by grace alone. Sola fide, saved through faith alone. Solus Christus, saved in Christ alone. Soli Deo, gloria, to God's glory alone. And what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, is basically a summary of Luther's 95 theses. Luther's 95 theses, interestingly enough, they never, interestingly enough, they never mention justification by faith. Luther never mentions justification by faith in his 95 theses. His 95 theses are just an explanation of what Jesus was preaching here in Mark. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In fact, that's how Luther's 95 theses began. Coming in at number one on the charts was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole Christian life is one of repentance where we are always turning away from our sin and turning back to Jesus. Now, that may sound a little bleak, but it's true. Tim Keller says this about Luther's first point here. On the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never make much progress in life. That, of course, wasn't Luther's point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. In religion... The purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ, to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. That's what John the Baptist was preaching, and that's what Jesus was preaching. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Christians need to do every day of their lives. What Jesus said in Mark 1.15 is what he's saying to you right now on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and it's this. Repent and believe the gospel. When you wake up every morning, you have one to-do list. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and turn back to Jesus and tap into the joy of being in union with Christ. Now, coming in on the charts at number 62 of Luther's 95 Theses was this. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Repentance and the gospel is what Luther was going for when he nailed that piece of paper to that door. That means then that when the devil tries to get you to believe that God's grace cannot cover your sin, 
when he tells you that God is still mad at you, that Jesus' veins and his neck are popping out and he's got a frown on his face at you, Christian, when the devil tells you that you've used up all of God's grace and God just won't forgive you anymore, simply tell him this one word, liar. Liar. The devil, Jesus said in John eight forty four, is the father of lies. Revelation 12, we're told he's the one that constantly accuses us before God. The devil wants you to believe that Jesus remembers your sins. He wants you to believe that you are condemned, but he is a liar. The sin that you cannot forget, Jesus cannot remember. Let me say that again, because some of you need this reminder at this very moment on Reformation Sunday. The sin that you cannot forget, Jesus cannot remember. And if Satan tries to get you to disbelieve that truth, if he tries to get you to not believe that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God, then you know what four-letter word to call him. Liar. Speaking of calling someone, The next episode that Mark wants us to binge watch is the episode where Jesus calls his first round of disciples to follow him. So look at verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and went with the hired servants and followed him. Do you need some good news this morning? This little paragraph in Mark's gospel is just dripping with encouragement. It reminds us that God picks weaklings. God picks weak people to extend his kingdom in this world. Jesus could have picked scholars and rabbis who had their PhD in the Old Testament. He could have picked those guys to be his disciples, but he didn't. Now, why not? Because they had no need of Jesus. They had no need of him whatsoever. They didn't feel their need of him. But these four men here, Peter, Andrew, James, John... They felt their need. They weren't the brightest people. You've read about Peter, right? I think Peter and Martin Luther would have been like best buddies, inseparable. When I read Peter, I think that's Luther. When I read Luther, I think that's Peter. They weren't the brightest people. They're just hardworking fishermen, blue collar. They didn't have their PhD in Hebrew. They were just a bunch of nobodies. And Jesus chose them to be a part of his close-knit friends. Understand this, Grace. Jesus only picks losers who don't measure up according to the world's standards. That's how he gets the glory. Duh, right? He picks losers that don't measure up to the world's standards because that's how he gets the glory. Because we can't take any of the credit. He picks people who are desperately dependent on him. Listen, if you can be a fisher of men, if you can be a missionary without the help of Jesus, he doesn't want you on his team. If you can do missions with either here locally, in your neighborhood, your workplace, the city, or the world, if you can do missions without Jesus, without feeling your need of him, he doesn't want you on his team. 
He only picks losers according to the world's standards. Jesus only picks people who are picked last. And then he takes a team and fills them all up with people who are picked last. So he's like, I'll just take the last guy that nobody wants and give me a whole team of them and we'll change the world. It's like the Bad News Bears. You remember that movie? One of my favorite movies growing up. I think the people that wrote that movie read the Gospels. I think they saw Jesus picking from the bottom of the barrel and assembling a ragtag team of the riffraffs and they were hopeless. And then they observed in the scriptures how those disciples turned the world upside down. And I think they thought, we could do a movie based on this. Jesus seemed to turn bad people into good missionaries, so let's call our new movie The Bad News Bears. Bad people make good missionaries. Three of the four men that Jesus chooses here in Mark chapter 1 go on to make big mistakes. You know them. Denying Jesus, cursing Jesus, I don't know him, let him be a curse. Fighting over who gets to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom when it finally comes in its final fulfillment. I want to be there. You want to be there? I want to be there. Hey, let's get our mom to go ask Jesus. Can my boys sit next to you in the kingdom? These guys were failures. They were bad people who did bad things. And the people who know they are bad are the most qualified to spread the good news to their neighbors, their city, their nation, and the world. People who know that they cannot make it without Jesus, they make the best missionaries. And Martin Luther knew that he was bad. He knew the depth of his sin. He knew his heart. In fact, one time he said, if you could look into my heart, you would get scared and run away. He also said, I am more afraid of my own heart than the Pope and all of his cardinals. I'm not afraid of what they're going to do to me. I'm afraid of my heart. Now, he was afraid when they brought him in to say, are you willing to recant what you said? The first time he went and talked to them, he talked so softly, kind of mumbled, they could barely hear him. The second time he went in to talk, when he finally gave that final glorious statement, he was still scared to death, but God gave him the grace to speak. And when they said, do you want to recant of everything that you're saying against the Roman Catholic Church and its teachings? Luther said, my conscience. But picture him, don't picture him like, My conscience stands captive to the word of God. He was scared. And God in that moment gave him grace. And he uttered, my conscience is captive to the word of God. This I cannot and will not repent. For going against my conscience is neither safe nor salutary. I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Luther knew the depth of of his own heart, his own sin. Luther knew that he was the biggest problem in the church in his day. Can you say that today? Can you honestly say this morning, the biggest problem with grace, the biggest problem with this church and in this church, it's me. If you can come to grips with that, you may be the starting place for a new reformation at this church. Something to think about, y'all. Something to think about as we pray for our church next week. If you can admit, I am the biggest problem with this church. If we can all say that, we might be on the cusp of a new reformation that spreads to our city and to the nations of the world. Listen, when the devil tries to tell you that the problem with this church is somebody else, 
tell him, liar. When the devil tries to tell you that the problem with this church is somebody else that's here, tell him, liar. Tell him, you're a liar, Satan. I'm the biggest problem. It starts with me, devil. It starts with my heart and my attitude about other people. I need to be the chief repenter in this church and not focus on others and blame them for everything. It starts with me. It starts with my repentance. Let me tell you, that will spark a new reformation in your home, in your neighborhood, in your marriage, in your workplace, in this church, in this city, in this nation. Jean LaRue said, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. If the biggest sinner that you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. Ask somebody close to you, they'll confirm that. The disciples that Jesus picked, they were messed up. You know that from reading the Gospels. You've read about them. But messed up, broken, sinful, weird people are the kind of people that Jesus picks for his team. Listen, no church today would hire Martin Luther. I find it interesting that churches around the world are celebrating Martin Luther. They would never hire him. He was weird. They would look at his resume, listen to his sermons, and say, we are not hiring that, that guy. I just find it interesting that churches, they're like, oh, we love Martin Luther. It's like, you would not welcome him into your church. You would not give the pulpit to that guy. Listen, God specializes in using weird, quirky people to extend his kingdom in this world. Please don't think that Martin Luther was some clean-cut, normal person. He was strange. Luther was a weirdo. You probably won't hear many pastors say that in their sermons on Reformation Sunday, but I will because Martin Luther was strange. He was not your typical pastor at all. So let Luther give you hope that God can use anyone to extend his kingdom. Let Luther encourage you that God can use you as a missionary because the guy that Jesus used to help spark the Reformation was a weirdo. Just Google some of the weird things that he said. R.C. Sproul says, tells stories of Luther in his book, The Holiness of God. Luther said this, and I don't say this to be crude. I just want to give you a sample of what he was like. He said, if I break wind in Wittenberg, they will hear it in Leipzig. This guy was weird. He actually suggested that as a means of fighting the devil. His writings are littered, honestly, his writings are, his writings are littered with him talking about how he, he belched all the time and had flatulence. I mean, they're all through his writings. This guy was a weirdo. When, concerning baptism, he said, if in, if in an emergency there's no water at hand, it doesn't matter whether water or beer is used. Luther knew, I just got off, off my notes here, where am I? Okay, even though, though I wrote that in last minute, I wasn't going to share it, but I was like, I have to. I want you to just understand, we don't lift this guy up and worship him. He was a weirdo, but God uses weirdos. Even though Luther was a strange one, he knew where all glory should go to God and God alone. Luther knew that any part he played in seeing the Reformation come about was all due to God's grace and therefore all glory should go to Jesus. Now concerning the role he played in the Reformation, this is what Luther said. He said, take from me for example. 
I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would it have been? A mug's game. I did nothing. I left it to the word. Reading about Luther, reading about the failures of the disciples that Jesus calls here in Mark 1 should give us hope that God uses all kinds of people to see his kingdom come and get done. He uses all kinds of people to get done what he wants done. Jesus uses all kinds of people. Weirdos, straight-laced, uptight, beer drinkers, teetotalers, vegans, oddballs, OCD, failures, misfits, socially awkward, vaccinated, unvaccinated, Democrats, Republicans, tattooed, dreadlocks, introverts, extroverts, mayonnaise lovers, mayonnaise haters, people with stomach issues like Luther. Jesus uses all kinds of people to get done what he wants done. And Luther was one that God used, and he was weird. His last words on his deathbed, someone asked him, do you still believe everything you said? And he said, absolutely. And then his last words are, we are beggars. This is true. That's what we are. We're just beggars. Unless God is merciful and gracious to us, we have no hope. And then, I don't know if you know, this is interesting. Luther was actually buried right in front of, under the pulpit where he preached at the church in Wittenberg where he nailed the 95 Theses. So he nailed the 95 Theses on that church door and then 29 years later they nailed his coffin and buried him right in front of the pulpit. So please understand that though I love Martin Luther, especially because he was so quirky, and though I quote him often in my sermons, he's not my savior, Jesus is. He points me to my savior. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is the one who should be the star of the Reformation. Jesus is the one who should be the focus and the star of this church. Jesus is the one that we should be obsessing over in this church. Not someone else and how they have offended us or how they bother us or how we don't like them. Jesus is the one who should be capturing our hearts. Jesus is the one who lived for us. Jesus is the one who died for us. Jesus is the one who rose for us. He's the one who gave us this alien righteousness that we could never produce on our own. He is our treasure. He is our delight. He is our obsession. And Jesus is the one who is the focus of one of Martin Luther's most famous and well-loved hymns. A mighty fortress is our God. It's a hymn that highlights God's kingdom where what God wants done gets done. It's a hymn that highlights that Jesus, that word, reigns above all earthly powers. It's a hymn that highlights that what God wants done gets done. And in verse 3, Luther talks about the devil, the one who was busy trying to tempt Jesus in the wilderness that we saw last week. Luther reminds us that Satan's doom is sure. He says in verse 3, the prince of darkness grim, 
we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Well, what is the one little word that will undo the devil? It's liar. Now, in, the, in verse 4, beginning in verse 4, he begins by saying, that word above all earthly powers, which is Jesus. But he's not referring to Jesus when he says one little word shall fail him because he wouldn't refer to Jesus as one little word. That one little word that will undo the devil is liar. Luther himself tells us that this is the word he had in mind when he wrote this hymn. This one little word that he had in mind was liar. When speaking about some of the books that were being written against him, Luther said this, For all such books, even if there were as many as thousands of them written every day and every hour, they are very easily refuted with the single word, Devil, you lie. Just as that haughty beggar Dr. Luther sings so proudly and boldly in those words of his hymn, One little word shall fail him. One little word shall fail him, Grace. One little word will stop the devil in his tracks. Liar. So when the devil tries to tell you that God does not love you, say to him, liar. When the devil tries to tell you that you can't be an effective missionary, say this, liar. When the devil tries to tell you that your sins are not forgiven, say this, liar. When the devil tries to tell you that bad people make bad missionaries, say this, liar. And when the devil tries to tell you that you're a weirdo and that God cannot use you in ministry, say this, liar. And when the devil tries to tell you that you can never raise the finances to be a missionary, say this, liar. And when the devil tries to tell you that it's too dangerous to risk your life to go overseas and be a missionary, say this, liar. And when the devil tells you that the pleasures of sin are worth it, say, liar. And when the devil tells you, like he told Luther often, that God is not gracious, tell him, liar. Some of you are struggling to believe that God is gracious. When the devil whispers that in your ear, say, liar. That's the one word that shall fail him, liar. I hope it lives on your lips. I hope you say it often and say it loud. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to stand and we're going to sing a mighty fortress is our God. And let's sing it so loud that the devil can't get it out of his head. We're going to sing to that word that is above all earthly powers, that word that did it all in the Reformation, the one who loves us and gave himself for our sins, and that's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son and all that you are for us in him. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has applied the benefits of Jesus' work on our behalf to us and credited that righteousness to our account. Thank you, Father, that the veins in your neck are not popping out looking at your children. But instead, you smile as a father loves his children. That was the heartbeat of John and Jesus and the Reformation. Let it be the heartbeat of the messages as you use us as missionaries here in Santa Maria and around the world. Do it for our increasing joy and happiness in you. And do it for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' name.
Amen.